Well, good evening to each one of you again. And I greet your name of Jesus again tonight. Thank you, Delmas, for that wonderful devotions. <clears throat> I should just sit down, I think. We understand what our Lord has given us and what it cost Him. We forget that it cost Him everything to bring us salvation. And what other response can we really have and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and then giving ourselves completely back to, completely back to him as a servant of his. Thank you, Delmas, for that devotions. And the singing, too. I am resolved no longer to linger. I appreciate that and uh, thought it went well with what I'd like to share tonight. So I believe I'm to be speaking to the youth. I think that was the assignment for me tonight. And uh, I enjoy... Speaking to youth, mainly because I still feel like one, and uh, partly because I still look like one. Um, a couple years ago, I, I, was, I was in my late 20s, and I was out installing some flooring, and uh, one of the customers walked up to me and said, shouldn't you still be in school? <laughs> I said, no, I actually have three children. <laughs> Hopefully not in school yet. <laughs> so I, I've always dealt with this young-looking face. But, and I didn't, I didn't like it when I was young at all, but now as I get a little bit older, it doesn't feel so bad anymore. But <clears throat> I, I, do, I do enjoy youth, and I, I feel I maybe can still remember what it's like to be a young person. It's not too far removed yet. I'm getting a little bit older, but it's still there. I still remember somewhat what it's like to be a young person. I remember one of the things that I really longed for as a young person was I wanted to be respected as a young person. I, I wanted that very much, to be liked and to be respected. And I, one of the things that I, I thought that to be respected, you had to be good looking and smart and rich and good at sports. I said, if I can be that kind of person, then I will be the respected person I, that I want to be, right? That's what I, I thought. If I could just be like that, then I could be the man, you know. And at 16 years old, I look into the mirror, and I'm covered in acne. I'm 140 pounds, dripping wet, and I stuttered. My mom had videos I had to watch to try to help me stop stuttering. I, I slow down and say your words distinctly. I can't. And I struggled with that. I, in school, I would think, Lord, don't let the teacher call me today because I'm going to start stuttering. If it's a W or an S, I'm going to be stuck on that. That's uh, terrible. But I wanted so bad to be big and strong, and I thought that's the only way to be cool. I remember the one day, I was, I was actually was 16 years old, and I was going to uh, our friend's house to hang out. We were, we were going to, was, was, at 16, we started going to the youth group in our area, and so I was going to a friend's house on a Sunday evening. We we're going to hang out. And uh, I, remember we, I remember going there. I got there early because I wanted to check out my surroundings to see where I could hide, you know, to see what's going on. And I remember walking down into this basement, and uh, I remember looking over in the corner of the basement, basement there, and there was a weight bench in this basement. And I knew what was going to happen, that all the guys were going to gather around and start working out to show off to the girls. And I was like, there is no way I'm going to get involved with that because at that point in my life, I was not, well, I'm still not very big, but it was about 60 pounds ago when I was at 16 years old. So I was pretty skinny, tall but skinny. 
And I remember there, and, I, and again, I, I struggled a lot with the way I looked. I, I hated the way I looked. I wanted to be big and strong. That's what I thought. I, I actually asked the Lord, Lord, make me big and strong. He's still working on that. <laughs> but, so I remember being there, and I struggled a lot with that. I struggled with my, how I looked and, and my, my, who I was. And I remember being there, and uh, of course, that's what happened. All the guys started working out. And I was like, there is no way I'm going. I'm, I'm hanging out by the food, trying to pack on the pounds, you know, peanuts and pr- protein and stuff. And they were there working out. And they were over there counting, you know, 25, 30s, one, you know. And I, poof. And they came to the end, and uh, this one of the girls that was there calls out to me, Kevin, you should come over and see how many you can do. Don't ask me that. I said, no, I don't think I can. I'm pretty sure that's okay. I don't want to do it. That's, that's fine. And uh, she said one of the worst things I had ever heard in my life. She said, I'm sure you can do it because I can almost do it. <laughs> so what do you do, man? You know? So I tried to look as big and strong as I possibly could, and I walked over and I said, well, make sure you watch here for me because I, if I drop this, I'll be even more embarrassed than I already am. And so I laid down there, and I sat down, and I pushed I got my right arm just about up. My left arm wasn't going. It was halfway up, and that's all she wrote. And they picked it up and saved me from more embarrassment. And I sat up from there, and I'm sure my face was red, and I just felt like crying. And another girl walked up to me and said, well, that, that's okay, Kevin. I couldn't do it either. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I really, it bothered me. I, it bothered me. I struggled with that as a, young, as a young guy. I struggled with who I was. But I remember the one day I, I got talking with one of the guys in our youth group that I looked up to quite a bit. I was about 18 then, and he was uh, about almost, he was 20. He had been about 20, 21. And he was one of those guys that was the guy you look at and think, man, it must be nice. I wish I could have. He was good looking. He was good at sports. He had money. He had a nice car. He's a leader. I was like, man, it must be nice to be like him. I wish I could be like him. And I remember the one day we started talking together, and I'm not sure how the conversation all went, but he started naming off things about me that he thought was so neat. You have this, you have that. And I looked at him, and I thought, you're jealous of me? (laughs) What? I'm jealous of you. I didn't tell him that, but I thought to myself, here he is looking at me and thinking, oh, it must be nice. I wish I could have what you have, Kevin. And that was quite a lesson to me as I began looking at my heart and my life and saying, you know what? God will give me exactly what I need to be who he's created me to be. And to sit here in envy of other people is not helpful at all. To recognize God will give me the strengths that I need and the weaknesses that I need to help me to never forget to rely on Him and to be able to trust God makes me just who I am and to learn to be at peace with who God has made me to be and not to sit in jealousy and wish that I had something that somebody else had. But I remember reading in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 
starting in verse 12. And these verses were very comforting to me, very encouraging to me as a young person. As I looked at, I wanted to be somebody, to be respected and to be somebody, you know. And I think Paul was talking to a man here, a young man by the name of Timothy. His, his name means, has the root word of timid. So he may very well have been a person who was kind of timid in his life. He might have been one of those guys that sat back and eaten the peanuts off the, you know, trying to pack on the protein. And Paul talks to this young guy and he says this, he says, Timothy, I want to tell you something. This bodily exercise profiteth little, a little bit. But godliness is profitable in all things. And I know I'm not, maybe you're not like me, but to me, the, the sports world especially was very important. Like, you'd be good at sports, you were like top of the food chain. That's what, I mean, if you were good at sports and all this, you were the, you were the man. And I'm just wondering to myself, I wonder if this was something that Timothy, as a young man, was wrestling with himself and saying, I wish I could be like this. And Paul, as an older man, said, look, Timothy, those things in the long run in life mean nothing. They're, they're very temporal. I'm 36 now, okay? And some of you guys here are probably 19, 20 years old. If I play you in basketball, I'll keep up with you for maybe about 10 minutes. And that's about it. Then you'll be mopping me with the floor. That's what's going to happen. These things last for such a short time. And sometimes I think we can get so wrapped up in this temporal stuff and miss the big picture of life, keeping an eternal perspective and all of that. That's what I think Tim, that Paul was telling Timothy. He said, listen, Timothy, this stuff is so temporal, but godliness is profitable unto all things. That's what's going to be able to carry you through to the end of life, is a godly character. And he goes on to explain to him, this is what it looks like. He said, listen, Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. But this is what you need to do. But be thou an example of the believer in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. That's what you need to do. That's what you need to focus on. If you want to have, if you want to be a man of respect and of character, this is what you need to focus on. To be an example of the believer in word, that's what you, how you speak. Conversation is how you live. Charity is the way you serve. Charity is, a, is the, the word agape. Agape, it's, it's God's love. It's sacrificial love. You want to be respected in life, I'll tell you this, you be a servant. To be a servant. Where can I help? What can I do? How can I help here? to be a person of charity. And then of, and then of uh, charity and spirit, that is our attitude, to having a godly attitude in life. And then of faith, to be a man of faith, unwavering, faithful, 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 living a consistent life. And then also of purity, to be a man or a woman of purity. You understand that? This is what Paul tells to Timothy. And how do you nurture that life? He says, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Give attendance to these things, to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine, to read good books, and most of all, to read his word, to stay in his word, and to be exhorted, to be, let your parents exhort you. What did mom and dad know? I'll just tell you this. Mom and dad are smarter than they look. Okay, I can say that. They've been around the block. And allow them to exhort you and to instruct you. And then also to take heed to doctrine. That is what is true. It's the greatest pursuit I think you could have in life is for what is true. And then to be willing to go where it leads you. And then he tells them to neglect not the gift that is within thee. God has given us a gift. And he wants us to use it. 
and then to continue therein and take heed to thyself, for in so doing thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. That's what he's looking for in a young man and a young woman. Be an example of the believer. And so that's a little bit of a rabbit trail from where I want to go, but that was some encouragement to me as I was a young person and as I wrestled through life and what really matters and how do I, what, what does it look like to be a Christian? Those are some things that have been very helpful to me. God will make, give you what you need to, give, to, to do what he has called you to do. And like Dale has told me this, you worry about the depth of your life and then you let God take care of the breadth of your life or your ministry. You take care of the depth and let him take care of everything else. But what I'd like to talk to you about tonight is something that I wrestled with as a youth in trying to find answers for, and that is the whole problem of pleasure. The whole problem of pleasure. How do you as a young person make your choices on what is okay and what is not when it comes to this idea of fun and pleasure. You ever wrestle with that? What is okay and what isn't? You know, I wrestled with that quite a bit as a young person. Well, I like to uh, start off with two uh, sort of foundation or two different illustrations here to set the foundation for the message. And then I would like to maybe move into a couple of truths that have been helpful to me as I try to navigate through this whole problem of figuring out what is right and what is wrong when it comes to fun and pleasure in life. I'd like to start off in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you want to turn to that, I want to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and looking at the first 11 verses. And what we're looking at here is a man who lived for pleasure. This is somebody who experienced every pleasure that this world can offer. And this was Solomon. And I want to look at what his conclusion was as he lived a life completely for pleasure and for fun. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1, this is what he said. He said, I, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, what they should do under the sun all the days of their life. I made me great works, I built me houses, I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the, the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasures of the kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Fascinating statement there. That he wasn't doing this just haphazardly. He knew what he was doing. That wisdom was still there, calling him back, calling him back. But he continued living the life he was. And then in verse 10, And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. 
I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Now the key phrase here in this passage, I think, is that phrase, under the sun. It's a Hebrewism, basically having the idea of having God locked out of my life. That's the idea of being under the sun. But here was a man who was experiencing every kind of fun and pleasure that this world had. He had everything. He was the guy you looked at and said, man, it must be nice. He had everything, gold, silver, all the great works. He had the, the harem. And they say, that's what I want. But as Solomon looks at all of this, he said, this is all vanity and vexation of spirit. It's all meaninglessness. It's all meaninglessness. Fascinating. This is not Job talking. You would think a person who had lost so much would say, life, what is meaning in life? But this was spoken of somebody who had enjoyed everything in life. Jesus tells us that these two things are, can, can knock faith out of us. Pleasure and pain. We see that in the, uh, in the uh, parable of the sower. There's four different soils that, that are there. One of them is the hard-packed ground. That is the hard heart that when the, then the truth is given to that person, they just throw that fist in the air. I don't know and I don't care. It's like little Johnny who was sitting in his class one day. And the teacher looked at him and said, Johnny, can you give me a definition for ignorance and apathy? And Johnny just sat there, folded his arms and said, I don't know and I don't care. That's the definition of that man of a hard heart. I don't know and I don't care. I don't really care about it at all. And when the truth is given to that person, the, the illustration is that the devil comes along and snatches it away. As a seed is planted, the bird snatches it away. The Bible talks about how, that's, how the, the prince of this world blinds the eyes of his people. He blinds them. They said, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. And can just sort of zone out when it's given to them. That's the one thing that can knock faith out of is a hard heart. But the other thing that can happen is also is the difficulties in life. And that's the rocky soil he talks about. That when it sprang up, but when the difficulty started to come in life, the, the faith was choked out. And so the, there, there is a, that danger of difficulties in life. But you know, do you, you ever find it interesting, the very first thing that a child does when they're born, do you ever think about it? I got to be there for all four of my children being born. And you know what the first thing that they do is? Is they come out crying. Why don't they come out laughing? I wonder if that already. <laughs> it's great to be here, you know. They come out crying. But do you know why that is? It's because... Grief and sorrow come naturally to us. It's the world we live in. The Bible says that all creation groans waiting for the redemption. 
It's the world we live in. But what's very interesting is as that child begins to find love and security in his dad's arms, he starts to smile and to laugh. And I think the same thing can be true for us. As we begin to find love and security in our heavenly Father's arms, we can still find joy in spite of sorrow in life. We find that relationship with Him, and He can bring us that comfort. He has engraven us upon the palms of His hands, the Bible says, underneath His everlasting arms. That's our Lord, and He'll help carry us through. But the other thing He talks about is then the other soil, and that is the... That is the uh, the uh, thorny soil. And again, it sprang up, but then the, the, it's the pleasures and the cares of this life sprung up and cut out the faith in that person. And so there is a danger here as well. Just We talk about difficulties and the sufferings in life, but I wonder perhaps if pleasure is not more of an issue that we face, more so than even difficulties and pain in life. Pleasure can as much knock out faith in us as can our sorrow. Well, here you have this man, Solomon, who lived a life for fun and pleasure. And as he comes to the end of it all, he said, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Well, I'd like to read also a little article I came across. It's written by an old English writer by the name of F.W. Borum. And if you ever get a chance to read anything that he wrote, I, I find it a fascinating writer, fascinating writer, old, old writer. But one of the articles that he wrote was called Phoebe's Perplexity. And what was happening here is that his daughter had come to him, Phoebe, and was asking her, Dad, can I go to this certain party? Can I go to this certain party? I don't know if some of you are dads and you know what that's like when your child comes to you and says, Dad, can I go to this certain party? You know what it's maybe like in your heart. How do I decide if it's okay or not what to do? Maybe you wrestle with that. I don't know. Not quite there. Okay, we have a few nods. Okay, I, I'm getting there. I got a 12-year-old now, so it's starting to happen. And how do I understand what we should do? And this is what he was wrestling with as a dad. How do I understand what is okay and what, is it okay or not? <clears throat> and in the, so I'm breaking in sort of in the middle of, of his essay here. But he writes this in this essay. He said this. He said, Laughter, merriment, and fun were quite evidently intended to occupy a large place in this world. And so as he looked at life, he said, there's a place for laughter, merriment, and fun as a, as a, as a part of life. It's a, with something that we all enjoy. We enjoy laughing and talking. It's, it's, a, it's a, a part of life. But he said, yet on no subject under the sun has the church displayed more confusion. One might almost suppose that here we have discovered an important phase of human experience on which Christianity is criminally reticent a terra incognito which no intrepid prophet had explored, a silent sea upon whose waters no ecclesiastical adventurer had ever burst, a dark and eerie country upon which no sun had ever shone. Dr. Jowett tells us of the devout old Scotsman who, on Saturday night, locked up the piano and unlocked the organ, reversing the process the last thing on the Sabbath evening. The piano's a sinner, the organ the saint. 
Dr. Parker used to wax merry at the man who regarded table games as a gift from heaven, while billiards he deemed to be a stepping stone into perdition. One Christian follows a round of gaiety with a madness of the merry, another wears a hair shirt and stars himself into a skeleton. One treats life as all a frolic, another all as a funeral. We allow without knowing why we allow, we ban without knowing why we prohibit. We compound for sins we are inclined to by damning those we have no mind to. We are at sea without chart or compass, our theories of pleasure and hopeless confusion. Is there no definite doctrine or amusement of amusement? Is there no philosophy of fun? There must be. Thank God there is. You know, I read that article and I thought, that's something that I wrestled with quite a bit as a young guy. And I would look around and say, well, these guys do this and these guys do this and everybody's looking at each other. And I said, who really knows? And what does it really matter anyway? How am I supposed to know? And I would wrestle and wrestle and get all stressed out in my mind about this stuff. Well, I'll just give you a couple of thoughts here before I get into a, a few verses here I want to share with you. But one of them is this. As a young man, I remember an old, I, I wrestled with this stuff, trying to understand how do I decide and look at these different groups and, you know, back and forth. I remember an old guy come up to me and he told me this. He said, well, Kevin, let me give you a, it's a, just a one line of advice. He said, anytime you go to move a fence, Always pause long enough to ask why it was put there in the first place. Anytime you're going to move a fence, always pause long enough to ask why it's put there in the first place. You know, and I see my generation coming along, and I don't know, I don't understand, and we just want to push over the fence and push over the fence and push over the fence and say, what does it matter? Who cares? What do mom and dad know anyway? What, are the, what does the church know anyway? And many times what I have come to realize is that these fences are put here for reasons. There's a reason these fences are put here to protect us and to keep us from going to a place that we don't want to go. I remember the one time I was at a friend's house and his dad had deer. And uh, it was in the middle of hunting season. And uh, this, this, his dad had uh, these deer in this fence, about 150 acres fenced in. So it was a pretty big fenced in area. And it was, I was in my late teens at the time when I went to visit this, my friend there. And uh, <clears throat> I remember going there and uh, the, 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 dad, the, the, the man was in, inside the fence and he was feeding the deer. He had, he had a bunch of nice hay for it there and they had a shelter for the deer if they wanted to go inside out of the rain and stuff. And, uh, and I began looking at this and began thinking to myself, I said, you know what? Those deer inside that fence are actually more free than the deer on the outside of the fence. I said, you know, this is hunting season. And so all these deer on the outside, they're getting shot at. They're getting eaten. If they get hurt, there's no one taking care of them. They have to find their own food. They're in, they have, they, they got to do everything themselves. But the deer inside the fence, they got food. They have shelter. They have someone to take care of them. There's not wolves eating them. They're safe inside this fence. And I began to think about it. I said, you know what? Those deer inside that fence have it much better than those on the outside. 
It was quite an illustration for me to think about. And I would just encourage you in this, before you start pushing over fences that mom and dad put there, or maybe the church has put there, to be sure you understand fully why that was put there in the first place. And if mom and dad don't know, I understand we don't always know exactly to have a good answer, but go find it. To understand exactly why we do these things is, is, is very important for us, I think, before we start pushing over fences that have been put there for us. But second of all, I would say this. In the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13 and 14, it talks about the weaker and stronger brothers. The weak and the strong. And it talks about in there that he says, if, if God has given you a conviction on something and you don't do it, to you it is sin. So if God gives you a conviction on something, you don't do it, to you it is sin. And so to me... I think there is a place where there is going to be a little bit different application sometimes on things. It might be a little bit different over here and over here, and that's okay. If God gives us a conviction on something, we need to do it, whether anyone else does it or not, because to us it is sin. But he goes on to say this of who really is the strong brother. Who is the strong brother? It's the one who's willing to give up what he thinks is okay in order to make it easier for the guy coming behind him. So I think it's what it's saying there. The one who's willing to give up. Paul said, to the weak I became weak, to the Jew I became Jew, to those outside the law I became anything I can do to help them people come into the knowledge of Christ. And maybe I'll just put this challenge out here to the, the parents here. Who are the weaker ones in your home? Who's the weaker one? It's not our children. And to be able to look honestly at ourselves and honestly at our life and say, is there something that I'm doing that is causing my children to stumble into sin? I remember when I was a young person, again, in a youth group, our bishop, Brunel Burkholder Sr., spoke to us as youth. And uh, one of the things that he mentioned in his talk was this, is that he said, I do not go miniature golfing. And I was a youth like, what? You don't go miniature golfing, Burnell? That seems silly to me. But Burnell said this. He said, I do this because there are people watching me. And I want to make it as easy as I can for those who are watching me to walk in a good path, in a godly path. And I'll tell you, I've mocked him for several years of my life. I'll, I'll be just honest about that. But as I went through my life and began to think about it, I said, you know what? Brunel loved me. That's why he did it. And he was willing to give up. Brunel wasn't going anywhere. I mean, he was the bishop and he was walking in godliness. But he recognized, he saw people were watching him. He said, I'm willing to give this stuff up who cares, right? That's what we always say anyway. So then who cares? I don't need to go miniature golfing, he said, because I, I want to make that easier for those who are coming behind me. And so I think the strong one is the one who is willing to give up some of those things. And I know we can't just run a, a whole church on the weaker brother. I noticed that if you, under, if you are using someone as an excuse for what you're doing, you're not a weaker brother because you know better, okay? 
But it's those that are walking in ignorance that don't know much, that don't know better, and they look into you, you're sitting there eating meat in the idol's, in the idol's temple. That's a first, first Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Tremendous again about this. And he looks in there and sees you sitting in there, and it, he says, well, he's doing it, so I'm, I, I must, it must be all right. I don't know any better. And so he goes and falls into sin. And, and, the, and Paul calls that a sin for us. We have caused him to stumble. We have caused him to stumble. And there's a responsibility that we also bear being the stronger Christian. But here we have it. We have this Solomon looking at the life of pleasure that he had and saying it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. And we have this old English writer, F.W. Borum, wrestling with this problem of pleasure. Is there no doctrine of amusement? Is there no philosophy for fun? There must be. Thank God there is. And I'm going to borrow from him, from that, the rest of his article then goes through a couple of principles that he gives on what it looks like, or what some direction we could use as we make these choices on pleasure. And the first one I'd like to give you is found in Judges chapter 7. I'm not going to read it a, and for the sake of time as well. It's a very familiar story. What I'm going to share in these things is maybe not explicit to the story, but I think what is implied can be helpful to us. But what happens in this story is this. Is that there is, it's a story about Gideon. And Gideon is a man of faith who is called by God to lead the Israelites out against the Midianites. 300,000 Midianites are coming up against Israel. And God calls this man to go and fight to lead an army. And at first, Gideon's a little worried about it, but finally he accepts it, surrenders himself to the call of God on his life and sends the call out to Israel, we need some warriors. And 32,000 guys show up for the job. Well, if I was Captain Gideon, I'd be sitting there thinking, okay, 300,000, 32,000. Ooh, that's like one in 10. I don't know if you can win a war like that, but uh, if God helps us, we should be all right, right? But God comes to him and says, Gideon, you got too many men. You're going to win, and you're going to think that you did it. And I don't want that. So I want you to go out here and tell these men, whoever is scared, to go home. And so he's, all right, guys. God says, if you're scared, you got to go home. 22,000 guys walk off the job. So now Captain Gideon is sitting there thinking 300,000 to 10,000. That's like one in 30. I don't think you can actually win with that many people. But God comes back to Gideon and says, Gideon, you've still got too many men. You're going to win, and you're going to think you did it. And so what I want you to do is take your men down to this river and get a drink. And there are two ways that they were going to drink here in this river. Can anybody tell me, maybe some, one of the children perhaps, do you remember this story of Gideon? What were the two ways that they were going to drink from this river? Do you remember? Yes. You got it. Exactly. Excellent. Tell me, which one of those did he use? Do you remember? With his hands. That's right. Yep. So one guy's going to go, just stick their head right down in that water and just drink it up, right? But the other guy's going to take this water and scoop it up and drink it like this. Tell me something. What can that guy do that takes this water and drinks it like this? Take that water and drink it like that. What can I do? What do you think? What do you think, Ernie? The water will 
Spill water on himself, yes. And there's one thing he can do, yes. That's right, he can watch at the same time. He can keep his eye on the enemy, is what he can do. The first principle I want to give to you is this. Is anything that distracts, diminishes, or destroys your ultimate goal in life is an illegitimate pleasure. Anything that distracts, diminishes, or destroys your ultimate goal in life is an illegitimate pleasure. But anything that refreshes you without distracting, diminishing, or destroying your ultimate goal in life is a legitimate pleasure. Is there anything wrong drinking that water? No, I don't think so. But it could not distract them away from what their ultimate goal was supposed to be for themselves. And God chose 300 men to fight for him, one in a thousand. But that's who he wanted to fight for him. Well, the question comes to us then, what is our ultimate goal in life? What is our ultimate goal? I think this is one of the questions that's going to haunt us. And as long as we can continue to wrestle with what is my ultimate purpose and ultimate goal in life, I'm going to continue to struggle with this whole problem of pleasure. Because I don't know what my goal is in life. I won't know what's really refreshing me or what's distracting me away from it. Susanna Wesley raised 19 children in her lifetime. She came from a home from about 29, if I'm not mistaken. And these people could have their own church. <laughs> but she had two sons that were used quite a bit. John and Charles Wesley. We sing quite a bit of Charles Wesley's songs in our songbook. And John Wesley was a preacher. He went around and preached. He preached uh, 40 thousand sermons in his lifetime. That's a lot of sermons, Dale. That's a lot of sermons. About four or five years ago, Ivan Weaver preached at our church, and he stood up and said this. He said, uh, this is my 2,000th sermon, he said, I'm preaching here. And Ivan's been preaching since like the pilgrims came over. Okay, so just give you an idea of how much this is going on. 40,000 sermons he preached in his lifetime. Did it all on horseback, riding, circuit rider, preacher, rode around on horseback, wrote 600 pieces of literature. At the age of 83, he became angry because his doctor told him he can't preach more than 14 times in a week. 86, he said, I was, he said, laziness is beginning to creep into my bones because I can't get up before 5.30 in the morning anymore. Quite a man. But when he was a little boy, he went to his mom and said this, Mom, could you give me a definition for sin? And I think she gave one of the best definitions I have ever heard. She said this, she says, anything that weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or diminishes your relish for spiritual things. In short, anything that increases the power and authority of the flesh over the spirit to you to sin, no matter how good it is in and of itself. Can I tell it to you again? Anything that weakens your, weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or diminishes your relish for spiritual things. In short, anything that increases the power and authority of the flesh over the spirit to you to sin, no matter how good it is in and of itself. Is it any wonder 
John became the man he did with a goal like that for himself. I find it interesting that when Moses wrote the laws, he gave 613 laws. 613 laws. David reduced it down to 15 in, in Psalms 15. Isaiah down to 6. Micah down to 3. What's required of thee, O man, but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. That's what required of thee, O man. My mom had that at the bottom of our steps at our house. And every time I had to come down the steps and see that as I walked down the steps, I think she was trying to tell me something. <laughs> do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. When the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He said this, it's not one, but two. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, and mind, and strength, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. As you look at setting goals for our life, I would say in the broadest sense, that there is our ultimate goal in life. It's to love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and all my strength. And to love my neighbor as myself. And if there's anything in my life that's distracting me away from this, or diminishing or destroying that ultimate goal in life, it's an illegitimate pleasure for me. It takes a lot of honesty before God to do this. But as you look at your life and ask yourself, are these things that I'm enjoying are they really refreshing me or have they become a distraction, distracting me away or diminishing or destroying what God intended me to look like? I tried too long in my life to straddle the lines, to have one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. I wanted a blessing of God's kingdom, but to enjoy the pleasures of the world. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. These things come in package deals, and you can't divide them up. The package deal is to walk the way of God and surrender your will, or try to straddle the lines and come to realize that's not the way it should have been. And so the first one I give you is this. Is anything that, ref that refreshes you without distracting, diminishing, or destroying your ultimate goal in life, is a legitimate pleasure. But anything that distracts you away or diminishes or destroys that ultimate purpose of loving him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving my neighbor as myself, anything that distracts you away from that is an illegitimate pleasure, no matter how good it is in and of itself. The second one I would like to give you is found in 2 Samuel 23, and uh, verses 15 through 17. And what is happening here in this story is that uh, David is hiding out in the, uh, in the cave of Adullam. <clears throat> and the Philistines are living in his hometown of Bethlehem. And as he's there in his cave hiding out, he cries out, Oh, for a drink from my well in Bethlehem. Oh, for a taste of home. Basically what he's saying. Oh, to be home. As I was thinking about this, I think this is probably when it can really hit us sometimes in the middle of the battle. And Lord, I'm getting tired. I'm, I want to go home. I'm tired of, tired of fighting the flesh. I'm tired of dealing with the flesh of other people, perhaps. 
I just want to go home. It's true, isn't it? We deal with this. It's a part of life we live in. Our flesh and the flesh of others. We, it's just what we have to deal with. And this here is David. He's, Lord, I'm, I'm, I, I want Ophrah drink from my well in Bethlehem. Well, three of his mightiest men of his boys, the big boys, heard him say this. And the cloak and dagger operation snuck in behind enemy lines and got him his drink of water from this well. And he went to David and says, David, we got this water for you. And he's like, where did you guys get this from? And they said, it's from your well in Bethlehem. We got it for you, David. We love you. And this is what he says here in 2 Samuel 23, in verse um, 17. And he said this. He said, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it, these things to these mighty men. He said, didn't you guys, you guys risk your life for my pleasure? How could I do this? And he took this water and he poured it out on the ground. The second principle I would give you is this. Anything that violates the sacred right of another is an illegitimate pleasure. Anything that violates the sacred right of somebody else is an illegitimate pleasure. You think of how the, all the Old Testament would have been different if David would have said the same thing when he saw Bathsheba. How could I violate the sacred right of Uriah and Bathsheba? God reminds us that our eye is to be single and it's the light of the body. And if the light goes dark, how great is the darkness indeed. And this temptation can be there to use others for our own pleasure. That's what this is, is using, the, using others for my own pleasure in life. And at one time, David looked at it and did well. The other time, he did not. But maybe you're here and saying, I'm not like David. I don't deal with that. But you know, there's things in our life that we can enjoy for our own pleasure and end up violating the sacred right of somebody else. I love my job. I love working. I love my job. I like to, I've been thinking about this. I like to change the phrase. We have this, thank God it's Friday, right? Thank God it's Friday. I say, like, I like to change it to, how about, thank God it's Monday. Can we, can we change this? You know, Love working. I love working. I really do. But you know, there's times that I can enjoy work so much and just keep, keep going back and keep going back. And my children come to me and say, Dad, when are you going to play with me? When are you going to play with me? When are you going to spend time with me, Dad? And my wife's like, when are you going to talk with me? You know, it's easy to go to work because I know what I'm doing there. I, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm I'm good at what I do, I guess you could say that. I could, you know. Sometimes you go home and I'm not always sure what to do. I don't know what to do. And so I just go back to work. It's easier there. I don't know what to do at home always. And sometimes we can have this pleasure in our life and end up violating the sacred right of our families. Or it could be our hobbies, perhaps. We end up spending all our time in our hobbies, in our social media, whatever it could be. Or maybe it could even be for myself, even my ministry, perhaps. 
I enjoy preaching. Can I say that, Dale? Is that, is that okay if I do that? I can enjoy it. And it's wonderful. People come and give you wonderful accolades. And oh, I, it's so wonderful. Thank you for what you're doing. And perhaps sometimes I can go and do that. And again, my children are saying, Dad, when are you going to play with me? When are you going to be here? And I recognize that there are times that we're going to, everyone has to sacrifice. I, I understand that. And it's good to teach our children to learn to sacrifice. That's part of life as well. But I think it just, this is maybe more of a subtle thing that we can deal with. It can start to creep in and creep in and creep in. And after a while, I'm just living for myself again. Jesus reminded us as he washed his disciples' feet, he said, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. It's when you learn to die to self and in service, in service to others. That's where you're, you'll, be, you'll find your greatest happiness. When you live for self and your own pleasure, it will leave you empty, just like Solomon said. And so the second one I would give you to the, is that. Is anything that violates the sacred right of somebody else is an illegitimate pleasure. And thirdly and quickly, I would just give you this real brief. It's blunt, but straight to the point. It's in Proverbs 25, verse 16. Solomon writes this. If you find some honey, take a little. Too much, and you're going to vomit. If you find some honey, take a little bit. Too much, and you're going to vomit. The principle is this. Any pleasure that's taken out of balance will distort reality and destroy appetite. This isn't real living. To live in pleasure all the time is not real life. And if you take, said, take some honey, take a little bit, too much, and you're going to throw up. You're going to, you're going to throw up. It's not real life. It's going to distort reality, and it'll make you sick. Living, keeping all pleasure in balance. Dale Schnupp was one that I heard him say that quite a bit. He said, Kevin, the hardest life to live is a balanced life, but it's the best. There's a, there's a, there is a balance to all of life. I love holding my wife's hand. I do. I also love playing volleyball. It's a time to hold my wife's hand. It's a time to play volleyball. We're not here, out here playing chain tag, you know. The time for this is a time for this. The time to go to church and the time to leave church. We come here, we're blessed, we're filled, but then we need to go back out and serve him. The time to start a sermon and the time to end a sermon. <laughs> Thank God. Solomon wrote this. There's a time to live, there's a time to die, there's a time to sow, there's a time to reap. There's a time of war, there's a time of peace. It's a time for everything under the sun. He makes everything beautiful in his time. And then he says this, and he set the world in our hearts. He said eternity in our hearts. That's it. That eternal perspective will be there to help us keep these things all in balance. And so that third principle I give to you is this, is that any pleasure taken out of balance will distort reality and leave you sick. Sick of life. Sick of life. I'd like to give you four quick, or four quick applications, and then I'll be done. And is this. Any pleasure for pleasure's sake will always leave you empty. Any pleasure for pleasure's sake will always leave you empty. 
G.K. Chesterton said this, meaninglessness in life does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness in life comes from becoming weary of pleasure. It's absolutely true. Solomon said the very same thing. It's very true. And so any pleasure for pleasure's sake alone will always leave you empty. Just living up for pleasure, trying to find some pleasure or distraction for myself will always leave me empty. Number two, all pleasure comes at the price of pain. All pleasure comes at the price of pain. For a legitimate pleasure, the pain comes first and the pleasure comes later. For an illegitimate pleasure, the pain, the, the pleasure comes first and the pain comes afterwards. You learn to wait for the time when the pleasure is right. The pain comes first, the pleasure comes afterwards. But for false pleasure, the pleasure comes first and the pain comes afterwards. And it's much greater than the pleasure that you ever enjoyed. Number three, the closer you draw to good pleasure, the closer you draw to the heart of God. The closer you draw to good pleasure, the closer you draw to the heart of God. There's a book by the name of Screwtape Letters, written by a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. And uh, in this book, he talks about this very thing. And uh, he talks about it's, a, it's the devil trying to get the, the Christian to fall. And uh, what, what happened in here is that he was, the, uh, the man was enjoying a good book every morning and he'd go for a walk right afterwards. He would enjoy a good book and take a nice leisurely walk afterwards. And the, the, uh, the devil, the, the, there's a junior devil and a senior devil. And the junior comes back to him and said, I lost him. And he said, what happened? So every morning he would sit there and read a good book. And then he'd go for a, a walk, a leisurely walk down the, uh, down the road, enjoying his, the beauty of creation. And the, the, the senior devil said, well, the problem is this. You should have tried to tempt him into thinking that when he's reading this book, he's doing it just so he can learn more things. So he can tell everybody how smart he is. And it would destroy the fun of it. And when he took that walk, he should have told him it was for, it was for exercise only. And he got tired of it. But you allowed him to enjoy some good pleasure in his life and it drew him towards God. The closer we draw to good pleasure, the closer you draw to the heart of God. But the closer you draw to false pleasure, the farther you're drawn from the heart of God. But fourthly, I'll give you this. The greatest pleasure of all is to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The greatest pleasure of all is to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. All pleasure must be found within the boundaries of holiness and to worship him in the beauty of holiness. Do you know what our greatest desire is in life? It's for intimacy. And the ultimate intimacy is with God. And finding that joy and pleasure in a relationship with Him. That's where we're going to find it. That's where we're going to find our ultimate joy and fulfillment in life, is in a relationship with Him. It's, it's true. I found it to be so. Learning to worship Him in spirit and in truth.
And do you know what the Lord's greatest pleasure is? He tells us in Psalms 146.11, I believe. I don't have it right here in front of me. But it says this. The Lord finds pleasure. Psalms 147, verse 11. There it is. Psalms 147, verse 11. It says this. For the Lord findeth pleasure in them that fear him, who hope in his mercy. That's, who, that's where God finds his greatest pleasure in those that fear him and who hope in his mercy. And the Lord's greatest pleasure and our greatest pleasure will come together in that wonderful way, I think, in the most beautiful ways when we stand before him someday and he says to us, well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come, enter into my rest. And I think that's the time we're going to understand what it means. And David says, at thy right hand are pleasures evermore. That's when we're going to understand it all. And it will come together in that beautiful way. I'd like to give an invitation to you here tonight. And perhaps you're here and you know that you have been enjoying pleasures that are not legitimate. Trying to find your fulfillment in things that are leaving you empty. And you would like, and you, the Lord's been speaking to you and you know it. And you want to commit yourself to him. Say, Lord, I have been falling short of this. I've been trying to go my own way. I've been trying to go my own way in life. I'd like to give you an invitation here tonight. If the Lord has been speaking to you tonight or throughout this week, and you're not right with him, and you know it, and you want to make that commitment, I'd like to give you a chance to do that here tonight. We're going to sing a song, a couple of verses here, and give you an opportunity, if God has spoken to you, have been speaking to you, to come forward and somebody will pray with you. What song should we sing? All right, number 309. Zion's praises, number 309. If you're here and you know that you are not right with him, and you say, Lord, i got to make these things right tonight before you. I'm going to commit myself to you. We want to invite you to come, and somebody will pray with you. Shall we sing?
Thank you for your attention again tonight. Hopefully this was helpful to you. I've been helpful to me in trying to wrestle through some of these questions. But I, would, I would just encourage you again, young people, to look at these things seriously. It's a serious thing. And these pleasures of life, they can so quickly carry us away to a place that we look into the mirror someday and say, what happened to me? How did I get here? And so I just want to encourage you again, take this stuff seriously. Talk to your parents, talk to your ministry. And as you look for direction in this area of pleasure, you can come through well and hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Shall we stand for a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you again for this evening and the time we could get together again and to look into your word. This whole area of pleasure, Lord, can be one of those things that can be so subtle, perhaps, in drawing our hearts away, be on our guard to watch and to pray. Lord, I pray if there is somebody here that has been walking away, maybe didn't have the courage to stand here tonight, I pray that you continue to speak to them, Lord, and draw them gently back to you, that they can walk in holiness and freedom with you, in a relationship with you. Go with us from this place, Lord, we pray. We give us a good night of rest and bring us back tomorrow safely, if not against your will. And now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.